I don't dread challenges. I try to ward off as many as I can, but things are still going to happen that you can't control. And it's how you deal with them. It's the, um, I always say it's the, it's the process and it's, it's not the end goal, but it's the value is in the process of getting there and how you, how you make decisions, how you handle yourself. everyone. Welcome to Community Good, the podcast that shares powerful lessons to help you navigate the life you want. I'm your host, Marnie Andes. In this episode, you'll hear from Diane Samard, a motivational speaker and breast cancer survivor who has dedicated her life to raising awareness about the psychological trauma that often accompanies a cancer diagnosis. Sharing more about her life, her journey, and her book, you'll learn that even the most challenging experience can unwrap the most unlikely gifts. And now, my conversation with Diane Samard. Thank you, Diane, for joining me. I'm so excited to have you in studio with me. Thank you. Me as well. Thank yeah, you. It's an good. honor to be here. Well, I thought I would tee it up this way, which is if, well, I'll even say it this when I came to know you and was introduced to you. Mm-hmm. I remember looking at all the accolades. Oh. I mean, just seeing the resume, you know, an executive leader, someone who has served on multiple boards, corporate, nonprofit. I mean, I feel like every other month it feels like you're like named as like top 10 women in business type thing. I mean, I know you're incredibly successful. And yet I don't think people would necessarily know where you grew up and where you came from. And I personally, when I wrote my book, wanted people to know where I came from because right. I thought that was super important. I know we have that in common, but I just love f- for us to just start by you sharing maybe a story or a memory okay. from your childhood. Yeah. Thank you. And it's it's such an honor to be here and and to connect because I always feel like those of us who grew up, we share this bond the, the the love of agriculture and the work ethic. And so what I always think of is um, growing up in a town of 80 people called Coatesfield, and we actually had an elementary school. And it was a one-room schoolhouse, like a little house on the prairie. And we had one teacher for seven grades. And it was amazing to be able to be in kindergarten and to hear the sixth grade math class. And so I've always, because of that experience and being in that open environment, I've always had an open mind and open ears. I'm always listening. I'm always alert. And I know it started because of that environment. And I I always reflect on the first teacher I had in grade school when I was in kindergarten. Her name was Mrs. Nettie Fernley. She was 75 years old when I started kindergarten in 1970. She was born in 1895, three decades after President Lincoln was assassinated. And so she had grown up in the, in the early 1900s. So much happened in her lifetime in that century. And she grew up, uh, she became a school teacher at the age of 14. And she taught school for 69 years. And when she was in her teens, she say, she played silent piano. Uh, excuse me. She played piano for the silent movies. And so she was always uh, performing, even as a teacher. And so I, was, I had never met anyone like her. She was just so full of life and 
a lot bit crazy. She just had so much personality. She just didn't care. She wore this wild makeup <clears throat> and knee highs. And I remember at one Christmas program, because there were about 15 kids of us across seventh uh, grades, and y'all, your cousin, everybody had a cousin that went to school. And our, at one Christmas program, she got a little punch drunk, and, and she started like this striptease act, because somebody had brought an accordion, and they were playing polka music, and she just kind of lost her mind, and, and she didn't care. And it was the first time I was ever exposed to someone that wasn't prim and proper, very conservative community. And so that was my first taste of who you can be, how you can be so expressive, and it, and it always just stuck with me. And they always say life in a small town, everybody knows your business, but there's not a lot to do. And so when someone is so unique like that, you know, you're just on. I just loved watching her. Oh my God, that is such a great, I, we could probably talk about her just for like yeah, the next hour, I'm sure. When I, when I give speeches, I often tell this story because she's fascinating. Her husband, uh, her first husband uh, served in World War One, was part of the Rainbow Coalition. And um, he survived trench warfare, but he came home and died from his injuries that he sustained. He was part of the Rainbow Coalition that General MacArthur, who was well known in World War Two founded this rainbow coalition of national guard units across the country for world war one when macarthur was a major and so just touching history you just these world events that she was a part of Mm -hmm. and um as i always say a little bit crazy but again memorable and and i've lived my life trying to be different and memorable but impactful well i mean just in the small town i you said something which was everybody knows your business, but to have someone like that so influential on you mm. so early in life, you know, before uh, before coming today, I wanted to actually look up online. So Coatesfield, when you search it online, says that it's a village. So does Wallace, Nebraska, where yeah, I grew up. Right. Yeah. So they're not even towns, which I love. And we're going to get into your book, but I love in your book where you're talking about like there were, there were no stoplights. There were only stop signs. Correct. They were mostly gravel roads. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and then you get into this place where I, I love how you shared the story of just the influence that she had on you and knowing that you could you could be different, you could be vibrant, you can do all these things. So, okay, so you graduate from high school. Uh-huh. And then and then what? Where does that take you? So I, um, my senior year of high school... I I just had I wanted I wanted to leave home at 18 which not everybody wants to do these days but I just wanted to be independent and free and on my own and so I actually went to community college in Columbus Nebraska and to study business which I did and I my senior year of high school I won a scholarship and they just sent me a check for $3000 they didn't care whether I used it for school or not and I thought well this is pretty cool and it was my first taste of almost entrepreneurism and what you can do and the things that you can set up. And so I actually made money going to community college and doing a variety of jobs and things, but I kept winning scholarships. And so I realized the value that these wonderful programs are there to help scholarships and awards programs. Not a lot of people apply for them. And uh, much like that in business is is those that go the extra mile. And um, depending on what type of work it is that you do, there are opportunities where, okay, yeah, you have to fill out forms and there's bureaucracy. But the trade-off, let's just take government contracting, for example, 
you get a long-term contract that is really hard for someone else to take away from you. But uh, anyway, after high school, I went to community college, ended up in a singing group. And so I stayed in community college for three years. And then I realized, well, maybe I should get a bachelor's degree because I'm not going to go far in corporate America because I had these Mm. dreams of working in a tall office building and wearing suits and fancy shoes to work every day. So I decided I want a degree in public relations. How hard can that be? And so I decided I I, uh, went to Kearney State College when it was still part of the state university system in Nebraska. And their public relations degree was within their journalism department. And so I wasn't thrilled about getting a journalism degree and having to take all the reporting classes. But honestly, that is what set the stage, the foundation for my writing skills that develop first and foremost as a, a hard news writer. And in, in hindsight, I kind of wish I had pursued broadcast journalism instead of print journalism. But that ability to write clearly and concisely and to learn how to tell a story, report a story, I should say, with the facts first, and then you back up the facts with quotes and you check your sources three times. That's how I was trained. It's it's evolved. It's different now, right? Um, but that was a good uh, foundation for me. And, and what I ended up doing was never setting a foot in a newsroom. But I, I pursued sort of the corporate writing, wrote a lot of proposals and grants and news releases and um, meeting minutes. And so uh, it's interesting you mentioned the book. For so long, I just, I continued to write like I was reporting a story. And uh, when I went through my cancer experience and I decided I want to, wanted to write a, a story in a memoir style, I actually hired a writing coach to help me unlearn, if you will, how to report a story and instead how to tell a, a good story and what goes into good storytelling. And and that has completely opened new doors and all this creativity kind of came to the surface and, and how I like to be uh, comical, if you will. I, I just, I'm just lighthearted. I'm just, I don't have all the answers. Here's what works for me, but I don't proclaim to be the best. This is just what I've observed. And I'm, a lot of the time, I'm just sharing like the stories of my kindergarten teacher. This is what fascinates me because I, I look at her born in 1895. That's a long time ago. And I, I just feel like this connection to the past and this rich history that I, I just don't feel those vibes uh, as I continue through middle age being tied to historical events like I used to when I was younger. Well, it's interesting that you said that you um, hired a coach, which I think too many people assume that, hey, you know, whoever wrote, you know, this this finished product and, and yes, you had training, of course, you had education that got you to that point, but that you hired a coach. I'm glad you did, though, because mm-hmm. what you put together was was awesome. Oh, I mean, you, you are funny in this book. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe for people that, I mean, people are going, there's shocking things in the book. Mm-hmm. There's lighthearted things in the book. There's really endearing things of the book. Um, if you grew up in a small town like Diane and I did, there are really fun things where you're like, oh, I mean, there were so many stories that I had to start. I mean, if I had to start actually just putting tabs on it because I was like, oh, yep, I remember that. <laughs> or that was a really interesting piece yeah. that we had similarly. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to get into that because, sure. you know, the way that you... I know that you've, on your website, it says it, and a lot of the way in which you sort of introduce getting into this was, here you were eight years ago, uh-huh. ready to just welcome this 
this year that was going to turn into all these things, which a couple of things you identified, which was you were going to slow down and it was going to be this next phase of your life. You were going to turn 50 that year. And then you get what you call as the call. Yeah, it's so true. And this is um, a little bit of backstory is that um, I was diagnosed with with breast cancer at age 49 and a half. At age 40, there was a benign cyst in my left breast. And so I had had annual mammograms since the age of 40. And so every year when I went faithfully off to have my mammogram, I just assumed I wasn't going to get cancer because I was having mammograms, which is so dumb. But that's just, I'm such a structured individual. I thought that was going to, that meant I would never get cancer because I was, Anyway, I just had that all wrong, and I, I finally realized that when uh, that January I got called back for a diagnostic mammogram and an ultrasound, which is the next step after they suspect they see something that doesn't look right. And in hindsight, I had breast cancer for two or three years, but because I have um, dense breast tissue, which many women have and men, uh, they could not see the cancer. I had three tumors in my in my left breast. Again, it was that same breast that had been, um, they were looking at 10 years before. Two of those uh, cancerous tumors were very close together. The third was on the chest wall. And so um, it was all over, but uh, what they found, and, and so I went back for the, the called back for the diagnostic mammogram, and, and the woman doing the ultrasound indicated to me she let it slip accidentally that she thought it didn't look good and so I suspected man you know it's my time and so I had a biopsy within two days I believe and yep it was cancer but then it took another three weeks of additional tests to figure out whether or not uh, the cancer had metastasized past my lymph nodes in my armpit and I always say that I'm an anomaly in many ways and my cancer was no different because most quote-unquote normal people, their base tumors, if you will, are much larger before it starts to spread to the, in, in, in usually the nearest lymph nodes in the case of the type of breast cancer I had, but my tumors stayed very small. The three tumors were all smaller than two millimeters, and excuse me, centimeters. And so um, it took another three weeks from the time that I knew I had breast cancer to find out whether it had spread throughout my body yet. And so, and that's living in a large city like Denver. Some of the rural areas, it takes months. And so, and, and my oncology team, they're like, you got to get moving on this because this thing is ready to break loose in your body any day. And it's just, it's just frightening. Your world just gets turned upside down with one phone call. Well, you said something that I think will resonate. It's, it, I mean, it just hit me now. I, um, I have a history of breast cancer in my family. I know you talk about how you didn't have Correct. a history of cancer in your family. So it was like, why would that happen to you, right? I've gone through all the tests. I've had to have mammograms since the age of 38. They've yeah. recommended every single year. And that's, I'm always like, well, it's just, you know, my little, my trek into the office to, to just, you know, check off that I don't have breast cancer, but to, to hear that, especially when you've got things planned, right? Yeah. No, it was going to be a big year, turning 50. And it's just it was just a major inconvenience, and I'm such a control freak. And I plan, and I just, I wanted to make turning 50 just be a special year and a special time in my life when I was just going to let go and stop trying to be so perfect. 
and lighten up and and um, honestly, I don't wish this on anybody, but boy, cancer did that for me. And to have um, such a supportive husband and family, good health insurance, all of those things that, quite honestly, I take for granted. A lot of people who don't have the choices or the options that I did because of the type of health insurance, if they even have a health insurance, it comes down to, do you pay rent, buy groceries, or get treated for cancer? It's awful, awful options. And so um, it was, I, I was angry at first because this was supposed to be a special time in my life, and, and I was going to finally give myself permission to just lighten up. And so... Not in a million years did I dream that this experience, this brutal treatment that I was going to have to go through because I was staged, and staged is, it just means how they're going to treat you. And so my tumors, my three tumors in my left breast were very small, but I had at least one um, cancer in my left uh, armpit lymph nodes, maybe as many as five, and they biopsied one, but they were afraid to biopsy anymore because that biopsy can unleash cancer throughout the rest of your body too. So it was really touch and go. So they just erred on the side of caution and they prescribed the nuclear bomb treatment, which is um, in essence, I didn't fit any of the parameters. Most normal people, like I said, their base tumors get much larger. And I and so they just erred on the side of caution. And they said, we're going to give you as much chemotherapy, radiation, and we'll talk about um, surgery here in a bit, but as much of that as your body can handle at age 49 and a half and hope that it's enough and that, you know, you're going to survive treatment barely. <laughs> but... That's and I had a second opinion on that, and they confirmed that that yeah, that's for someone who's as abnormal as you are, Diane. That we recommend that you just do the full on, and not everyone can um, withstand, not survive, but just these are this is brutal. It's just brutal. It's everything. And then I did a lot of dumb things along the way that I talk about in my book, thinking that I was smarter than. And these are just unbelievably importantly vicious drugs and poison that they're putting in your body and they take you to the edge of death and you think I, I was so worried that I would never feel good again because always um, for the first of my 16 chemo infusions which I had chemo first because they wanted to see if those little tumors would shrink even more because that was going to determine what type of surgery they recommended so the options for me were a lumpectomy where they just go and they take the tissue and certainly the the cancer, whatever's left of the cancer, and then the tissue around it until you get these clear margins or full mastectomy. And and the choice, because it was all located just in the one breast, I could have had a single or a double mastectomy. And um, as it turned out, the, the, the chemo part, that was when I really started. Of course, that's when I lost my hair and I made that choice to lose my hair um, because I was there was no data in 2015 when I went through this, whether or not, uh, because cold cap therapy where you preserve your hair was so new in this country that there was no data yet, test data to show whether or not cancer could come back because you froze your scalp. And so I said, well, I don't want to have to go through this again if I don't have to. And so I chose to lose my hair. And that was an important part of my experience was that therapeutic cleansing. And I hated being bald. I I was not bold enough to not have anything on my head. But it scared me. It, it I mean, just looking at myself in the mirror really, really scared me. And so I put on makeup just to try to feel human, quite honestly. But um, the pounds during chemo melted off. 
quickly because, um, and I've never had children, but I understand that chemo can be like a pregnancy where your uh, energy is being used, the, the energy that you gain from foods being used to, in this case, create a new a new um, uh, human being or two or whatever it is. In this case, your body is so busy regenerating cells that it just takes all the energy and then it goes to those fat cells, which is well, fantastic. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's a horrible way to describe it. But but um it just melts off. Doesn't matter what you if you even wanted to eat. But I didn't I didn't have an appetite. But uh and then um there I had four of these uh adriamycin and cytoxin, which is the red devil um and that's what makes your hair fall out. And so I lost my hair on day twenty one, even though I shaved my head four days after chemo because it just your um your hair is starting to dry out and it's just brittle like the feeling like you haven't gotten all the shampoo out of your hair that's what it felt Mm. like and I couldn't stand it so I cut my hair off in two stages and then the Sunday afternoon my husband helped me shave my head it was very liberating and it it was kind of like Demi Moore and G.I. Jane because um, I still had stubbles and I still had eyebrows and eyelashes and I kind of felt I was sort of badass and and it was very empowering for like a day and then I started to try to wear wigs, and it just, I felt like I had cockroaches crawling on my head. And it, it's just such a um, mind, mind-bending experience because these drugs, they're really, um, the anti-nausea drugs, really, they're, um, you know, telling your brain that you don't have nausea. I mean, it's, it's, it's really brain drugs, and... Um, the the uh, nausea medication that I was on, they give to schizophrenics. And so I just couldn't think straight. I was like seeing white everywhere. It was trippy. And, but that's how you get through this. So anyway, well, it, it just, the point um, to get back to the book is that I, I sped read as many cancer books as I could because I was just curious. I have this inquisitive mind because of my journalism training. What is this going to feel like? What is cancer like? couldn't find anything that described that and I would ask breast cancer survivors what was cancer or what was chemo like for you and they're like I I don't know I just got through it and forgot about it and so I needed to know so that was a lot of my motivation for being so graphic and quite honestly I don't mean to gross anybody out but this was the book I wrote the book I wish I'd had to read because these were the things that I wanted to know now there's many people who have gotten um, started on it and had to stop because it's just too, my sister could hardly get through it. It was so difficult. But I'm the kind of person that I just need to know. If I know what to expect, mm-hmm. I can, I can, I can handle it. I'll find a way. Well, it, so I want, I'm going to, we're going to go back into one of the things where you talked about being a control freak, because I think part of the experience is you go through, but what you just said, I had that moment one morning, I was I had picked up your book and I had started reading and I don't even remember. I must have been about midway through, but you were describing something and I had to get up, go get a glass of water. Mm-hmm. I thought it was just me and then I thought, no, I think it's actually because of what I'm reading. I mean, what you describe, one, it's been incredibly educational for me because, you know, I didn't know half, not even a quarter of this information right. did I even know. Um and this whole idea of how somebody goes through this, especially in the position that you were in, and I, I want to say this in a way that makes sense because it's breast cancer affects so many women from so many different backgrounds, from so many different lifestyles, and 
I want to talk about what yours was, though, because you, know, you talk about, you know, I'm a control freak. I like things, you know, I have stuff organized. Yeah. I'm very, I mean, you even describe yourself that you and your husband are both really neat freaks. Uh-huh. And, and suddenly this happens. And how do you just sort of, well, you said it was liberating to, to shave your head. Mm-hmm. How do you liberate yourself from what you've been doing for almost half of your life? Yeah, thank you. Great question. So my first thought was, I have to learn how to be good at cancer too, right? And that perfectionism, that striving for order and structure in your life. And I'll be darned if there's just, I mean, not even the oncologist. She's like, Diane, just enough with the questions. Just stop. And she said, "It's di- well, first of all, it's different for everybody. And so um, in where I was treated at Parker Adventist Hospital, Uh, It was an open infusion room. And so there were seven chairs, infusion chairs. And so I, again, for being such an observant person, it's tough for me to be there. And and you you don't get sick. You don't feel sick during the infusion. Well, I didn't, at least. And there's so much fluid going and dripping into your body. It's amazing. You don't just like explode. But uh, it's, it's, within the next 24 to 48 hours is when it hits you. But I, I just was, I was so overwhelmed by, uh, and it was a lot of the women who were being treated for breast cancer, they'd have conversations about all these drugs I'd never heard of. And then um, I had suspected, I'd been told that mastectomy was not going to be required for me. I could do it, but it was the way they were describing their um, surgeries. I'm like, I don't want to go through. That sounds awful. This is bad enough. But anyway, that really frightened me because I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm, I just don't know enough about cancer. I'm not as smart as they are. And so I felt inferior once again, because I'm just, I need to be good at whatever. And I was so used to being good and knowledgeable. And quite honestly, I just really didn't even care. I just wanted to get through this. I thought um, I was going to invite friends to um, chemo and sit with me so I could interview them for future books or projects or something. I just needed to make good use of this time. But they give you so much, um, so many relaxers and, and Benadryl and things. You're just zoned out. You just fall asleep. And you wake up and you're cold. And it just three hours. So you have to, when you have to go use the restroom, you have to unplug and go take this infusion machine with you to the restroom. And it's just, it's just such a pain. I'm like, I had no idea this is what cancer is like. And I'm one of the lucky ones because I have um, early on in chemo, I had not fallen into depression yet. And the other thing about my experience is that because my type of breast cancer, and there's, I don't know, six or seven different types of breast cancer, mine was estrogen fed. So they shut off my estrogen and they said, this will launch you into menopause on top of everything you're going through. So... um, for the first month or so, I didn't have the hot flashes and all of that yet. But once that all started, it is unbelievable. So you were having hot flashes, but you're freezing cold. And it's it, it's so hard to imagine that. But yet, really, your body is so confused. And you're just beating up this poor body. And it um, the first four infusions were every other week. And so the first week, sick as a dog, I was so sensitive to smell. And then the second week, you start to feel pretty good. And then it's Tuesday night, and you're having another god-awful infusion the next day. That was the worst. And because I became so anxious and nervous about, I know I'm going to be sick, and I'm 
and the next five days are just going to be awful. And I created so much anxiety and, and got so depressed about that. So I did make it through the first four infusion that took two months. I ended up in the emergency room with about a vertigo right after I finished those first four infusions because I had um, um, finally found some anti-nausea medication that worked. But before I did, they just couldn't figure out. I just had terrible nausea. I was sick all the time. And so I thought, how harmless could acupuncture be? So I went and had a couple of acupuncture treatments from a dear friend. And uh, we had a particularly rainy spring that year. I was diagnosed in February. So two months into chemo, it was spring on the Front Range in Colorado. And we just it just kept raining. And so my allergies were killing me. And so... Um, when I had this acupuncture treatment, it unleashed so much energy. And I had these shooting pains in my head. And what it did was um, I rolled over one night in bed and it broke loose the crystal in my inner ear that controls your balance. And I, I, I just launched into this horrific bout of vertigo that like I was sicker from that than ever anything related to cancer treatment. And they took me to the emergency room and it took Valium and, but for the next six months, I was spinning all the time. I couldn't wear high heels. I couldn't um, turn my head when I was driving to switch lanes. I had to stay in the same lane. It was just so, and going through menopause. And, and it's like, how much more can I take, you know? Right. And, it, and it became comical. I mean, I was a freak. I looked like a freak. And then once I got through um, the first four worst part of chemo then they switched drugs and I had chemo every week so I had steroids every week so that 23 pounds I took off came back on and more because of all the steroids and I was having I was eating a healthy diet but you just it's like you can't win and and uh, breast cancer in particular it, it touches all those feminine buttons and I was just miserable and depressed and anxious and nervous and I hated and honestly Later, I learned how many people just stop chemo. Like, I had 16 infusions, and some of them stopped three-fourths of the way through. They're just done. And they're like, I'll take my chances. I never even thought of that as an option. And I just kept going because that's my nature, right? Mm -hmm. And that was on on my last um, chemo day. You ring the bell, and there's a big celebration. And then the infusion nurse said, um, I can't remember what the statistic was, but most women don't get through this drug, this last chemo drug, without having to stop. And I, I looked at her, I said, I didn't even know that was an option. <laughs> so here I am just just taking orders, doing what I'm supposed to do, trying to do my chemo and my cancer thing right. And that's just how I'm wired. And I don't know if that has anything to do with coming from a small town, but um, it just finally was over. Thank God. But, but uh, it was near the end of chemo that I was cycling into depression because I was so bummed that I knew for the next, well, actually two days after your infusion, you feel great because you're high from the steroids. And then this, it's like this, you hit, literally get run over by a train and you can hardly move and you're just aching everywhere and you really want to die. And then like, just make this go away. And I had to go through 12 of those. Anyway, um, I, I approached my oncologist about, hey, I think I'm going a little bit crazy here. Can you recommend a therapist? Yeah. And and, uh, and I got quite a lecture from her about, first of all, well, if you need to talk to somebody, insurance isn't going to pay for it. And then I, and she didn't know of anybody that specialized in. And so then I went 
off on her a little bit. And I said, you know, we have marriage and family counselors. We have got sports psychologists. You mean to tell me we don't have people trained to help what go through this psychological trauma of a nightmare that's called cancer? And she goes, I know they exist. I just don't know who they are. And I go, you've got to be kidding me. So I did some research and ended up um, at the University of Denver, which is how we got to know each other through DU. And um, I knew some folks there. And as it turns out, they have a graduate school of professional psychology, which um, DU actually graduates the highest number of licensed psychologists in the state. And so I was introduced to the dean there. And she educated me about behavioral health, quite honestly, and how I would say within the last 30 to 40 years, the tie between behavioral health and physical health is um, thankfully starting um, to talk to one another, quite honestly, because um, I know with my experience going to see my regular um, doctor, if I mention anything about depression, he's like, well, I can, uh, here's, here's your list of pills I can give you. And right. um, because they have limited, they're just, this is not their area of specialty either. So anyway, I, I, I became passionate. I was looking for a life raft of, of something that could pull me out of my cancer funk and this whole um the trauma the, the how traumatizing this is and how worried and how anxious and nervous it just really frightened me that everybody was just kind of flip about well just go to a cancer support group you know right. that'll solve all your problems and it's like no no it won't will you talk about it i i think that's where you know your book in particular hit home for me not just the stories but to to really talk about what what you were going through not just the physical sense of what was happening it was like this is this is how i'm feeling these are the kinds of things that it's stirring up i mean it's i can't even i won't i'm not even going to begin to like summarize any of that stuff because it was so incredible all the different things that you went through mm-hmm. but what i found fascinating during that journey was the fact that there was this period of time though that you didn't want to ask for help you didn't want to show what was happening. So where, I mean, where was that in your journey where it's like, this isn't right. I do need to go talk to somebody and I have to have way more support for the psychology piece of it than I even, even maybe more so than I even need for the physical side of all the things that I'm doing treatment wise. Where, where did you finally just say enough's enough? Yeah, it was, it was near the end of chemo. That was such a symbolic, I was so glad it was first because it was, I knew it was going to be the hardest part because I have this weak stomach and um, I just wasn't thriving through cancer, and that scared me. Because usually I can conquer or figure out a way or call somebody very resourceful. You just, you grew up in a small town. It's just, you're a problem solver. That's how you survive, right? Mm-hmm. And there was no way out of this. And and that just wasn't acceptable to me. And so, uh, and then, and just like I said, kind of how glib everybody was about, well, you know, it's really not my problem. I'm just here to pump you full of drugs and get you through because I got, I actually am seeing eight patients this afternoon. I mean, it it felt so commoditized. I, I really did feel like a commodity. And then this is all important in research for cancer. Um, they want you to participate in these clinical trials because data and research is, is what's going to help us learn how to treat cancer, improve treatments. But I just was blown away by how commoditized I felt. Mm-hmm. And 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 I use the analogy, which I know you can relate to, of just um, 
raising cattle in Nebraska, you just, you raise, there's a purpose, you get put out in the pen to get fat and they're going to take you to slaughter. I, I just, that was, I kept going back to that analogy and it just didn't seem right to me. And there's a lot of talk with cancer care centers about humanizing the experience and making you feel more like a human being, but the sheer volume, one in every one in every eight women are going to get breast cancer. One out of every three women, one out of every two men will get some form of cancer in their lifetime. And that's where we're at today. And so it is, uh, I don't even know what the right word is, but um, it's expected it's going to happen. So just get through it. And um, I sensed the fear of someone like me going all Norma Ray on this and, and bringing attention was, oh my gosh, there she goes. She's bringing attention to this. Um, what are we going to do with this now? Because she's going to get everybody all riled up. And honestly, addressing the mental health aspect of this experience just isn't part of the cancer treatment protocol. And I have a better understanding now why everything from liability to the cost to the, you rip off a Band-Aid of a trauma that you had when you were younger. And because of your cancer experience, that trauma is now fresh again. Whose responsibility, whose fault is that, right? And so um, unlike um, things like nutritional therapy or uh, after you have lymph nodes removed or your surgery, you go through lymphatic massage therapy, you know, these different tools, something like your mental health and your brain, it can take years to heal. And some... Cancer survivors get diagnosed with um, post-traumatic stress disorder from this. Typically within six months of them finishing treatment is kind of of, of how that works. And then within four years, um, the first four years are the toughest. And then um, some, um, it, it gets better for some, it gets worse. And so I had no idea you could get PTSD from cancer. And it's a thing. And so going back to the University of Denver, when I met with the dean of the Graduate School of Professional Psychology, we talked about behavioral health and her interest in offering um, a specialty of classes that started to bring, because um, they have all these different specialties about the different psychology needs. And I said, you know what, I, I know that's important, but I just went through cancer. And it scared me to death. And I don't wish this on anybody. But I know I can't get past this until I do something to try to help make this better for others. And that's when I, uh, when I ret- refer to it as my life raft. So I seed funded and founded a specialty. Um, and it's called the Center for Oncology, Psychology, Excellence, or COPE. And it's a four-course specialty. And um, we've trained, offered training to um, some at the graduate level, some who are going to get their doctorates uh, and be um, psychologists. But they're starting to learn about the unique aspects of cancer and the fact that there's no, well, I wish there was just one cure for cancer. We need to find cures for all the different types of cancer. And um, we've made a lot of progress in the research and the data and the information to treat um, cancer more effectively. That's a general statement. Um, Some cancers are very hard to to detect until it's too late. And they're so far advanced that they don't have uh, remedies or treatments even available that are very effective. But um, overall, statistically, when you take a step back and look, um, but the key certainly is to um, to find it certainly as early as possible. Um, in my case, as 
doing everything right, everything that I could do, um, and they still couldn't see it. And so those, and there's wonderful organizations advocating for more information about um, dense breast tissue. That's very important. Um, some argue even that point, but I, I, I believe that if um, I had known, I would have been more insistent that they do more screening um, because I, it, it's amazing. I, I had heard um, a radiologist speak about how it's like trying to find, trying to see breast cancer on a scam is like looking for uh, a panda bear among, amongst a bunch of soccer balls, or maybe it's the oh, way around. It's, it's just really hard. Right. So anyway, that was my, and, and the other kind of self-therapy, because I never did go see a therapist, but I started writing my book. And I I um, was just journaling at the time, just writing down. And it was after I finished treatment. We launched COPE two months after I finished treatment. And then I started writing my book exactly a year after I experienced what I was writing about. So you mentioned um, how just the way that I uh, describe things so realistically. When I was working on my chapter about starting chemo one morning, and I, I would write for an hour before I went to my job, I actually ran to the bathroom to get sick. I mean, it was so fresh in your mind, and, and the brain has this ability to put you back in that moment, and it was frightening. But it was imp- that's how I healed. That's how I got past it, was reliving it again. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've talked about journaling before of how incredibly powerful it can be. I, you know, even though you didn't go to therapy, how therapeutic that that yeah. process was. Of course, it ended up turning into something really magical too. The fact that you were able to publish a book and, and share all those pieces with everyone. I I think back to, the, there, there was a part in your book that I thought was really interesting before we transition into this sort of last, last part of this, because yeah. I want to hear about a lesson from you too. But I think a lot of people, when they, when they hear of someone who's had cancer, there's people that are listening right now, I know that have probably even dealt with breast cancer. Sure. You went back to a childhood memory of wondering what you had done to inflict this on you. <laughs> and all I can think of is now lime soda. Yeah. <laughs> so I have, um, I just, I beat myself up. And, and I I don't, um, I didn't blame myself like I brought this on myself. But I really did wonder, like, I've tried to be a good person my whole life. Be helpful. Invest in startup companies. Help other entrepreneurs. You know, do everything right. And what did I do to deserve this, you know? And so and that a lot of that goes to my upbringing and um, the United Methodist Church, other similar Christian religions where, okay, if you do these things, bad stuff's not going to happen. And so I just, and so one of the, <laughs> one of the things I thought of one day was when I was, I don't know, eight or so, we had our little general store on Main Street in Coatesville, Nebraska, and um, I think I was hanging around with my brother and my cousin, and we went and stole some surefine lemon lemon lime soda, and it was like a dime a can. And I and that was like the only thing I ever stole in my life. And I thought, okay, after all these years, finally God is punishing me for stealing that <laughs> stupid can of lemon lime surefine soda. And and it just, I mean, I thought of everything. I relived my life so many times, just wondering. What did what could I have done differently? And um, <clears throat> was one of the questions I asked my oncologist. And uh, I would always see my oncologist before each one of my infusions because you know your blood counts are dropping and 
Um, we're keeping you alive, but uh, you're good. She's good to go. Go pump her full of drugs. And I asked a, a, a question, and she said, stop. Just stop with all the questions, Diane. We don't know why you got cancer. Just stop wondering why you got cancer and focus on living. And I just, it, was, it stopped me in my tracks. And, and that was the, it was like a, such a turning point for me. And I'm like, duh, I need to just, I need to just process this and to turn it into not a positive, but a life-changing moment. I am likely going to, if I can get through the rest of chemo and radiation, I have a pretty good statistical chance of surviving this. And if I can withstand the drugs that shut off your permanent, your estrogen permanently, those are brutal. But um, I'm, and, and I took it to say this is a, this is a second chance at living. Don't screw it up by wondering why and being so mopey dopey, and, and and it just changed my attitude. And and that was really what allowed me to say, let's be more solution oriented. And I was talking to myself and and do something positive and stop complaining about how you feel so lousy all the time and and be grateful and and have gratitude and grace and it and it really it helped i just i needed i just need it was like a slap in the face Mm -hmm. and and i needed that and and changed everything yeah well i mean the title of your book the unlikely Mm -hmm. gift of breast cancer yeah you know there's so many lessons in here and you know i ask all of my guests this question What what has been the biggest life lesson that you've learned that you could share? So um, overall, I, I believe that um, I, I don't want to be looked up to and admired because, I mean, so many people go through this experience. I just happened to be the one that it freaked me out but I'm the perfectionist and I'm the one that's structured in order. I just need solutions. I think there's... So much that could be improved about about the process, but I realized if I'm going to bring mental health to the surface and to say there are some broken people, traumatized people out there that um, you get through it, and some of them I think I get the sense try to forget about it, but it's a trauma that needs to be processed like any trauma in your life. This is no different, and so I knew if I was going to be the one advocating to bring more attention there needed to be more resources and we needed to have more therapists trained specifically in what makes cancer so unique and so i i applied i think my business experience to that to that problem and so as a result of all of that i came away from cancer and people still to this day they'll come and they'll pull on my hair and they're like wow you've got you've got long hair again. You know, there's people that think you stay bald for a lifetime. And I can understand that because we're staring, you see pictures of bald women. Oh, she must be going through breast cancer. And it's possible to have a life after that. And so my life lesson is to seek respect and not adoration. And what I mean by that is um, life happens. Awful, horrible things happen. They're still happening today. We're repeating the same mistakes over and over and over. That's the definition of insanity. But I, I don't, I don't care if anybody knows who I am. If I have all these likes, I just, I just want to open the door and say it's okay. You have feelings. 
a cancer experience is hard on everybody. It's frightening. And, you know, some people wouldn't hug me because they thought they'd catch cancer. I mean, there's just so little that we know about this, right? And and so I'm the one. I just want to put myself out there and to have the credibility and to say, I am, I'm not out here to make money writing books about cancer. Um, there's a lot of cancer books. And it's not people cashing in on cancer. It's because this is such a life-changing experience uh, and, and impactful. It It is, um, for some, it is who they identify as for the rest of their lives as a cancer survivor. I thought I might be one of those. I don't think I will be. It's it's now eight years out, thank God. Um, it's a traumatic experience in my life, like divorce, like um, losing a loved one, um, humiliation, rejection, all those things. And but I do understand now, and I focus on self-care, healthy, eating healthy, exercising, all of that. Because if I, God forbid, after ever go through this again, as I age, um, you really want to be in the right mindset and to be prepared because it is hard. It is really, really hard. I'm so happy that you're here and Thank doing you. well. Thank you. I mean, and... You know, the, the stories that you share and the way that you describe this experience, I really do think it's for everyone mm. to read. And I want people to be able to do that. So I would just, if you could share, maybe you have some things going on, too, that you would sure. love to be able to share with the audience. And Absolutely. how can they get in touch with you? Absolutely. So um, the best way is uh, I have a personal website. It's uh, com. You'll probably have all this in the show notes. And you can order my book off the website. <clears throat> I My website is... <clears throat> my website is intended to be an informational uh, resource. And I'm building that up, continuing to build it up. So I'm sorry. Okay. <clears throat> A lot of talking does that. And on my website, you can also access my, I write a monthly blog and I publish a monthly newsletter. And in the, in the blog, those are short stories. A lot of, I'll, I'll pick a topic and I'll just write a short story about that. And that's more discipline because I need structure and it keeps me in that writing mode. I have a monthly newsletter where I, I do a lot of, of, of advocating for mental health resources. I'll feature someone who's a local therapist that is accepting um, clients and or does telehealth and so it's more of an informational resource as well you can order my book off my website and then I also have a contact um, uh, link and then I'm very active on LinkedIn and um, I have a Facebook presence and what I'm what I'm focusing on now is I, I had been uh, working in corporate America up until last summer and now I'm taking some time for me because I've got vaults of stories that I want to get down. And so I'm working on a book right now. I'm actually finalizing a book about my 10 life and business principles. And it, I'm talking about healing forward and impact leadership. And because I've found in, in meeting and interviewing other leaders who've been through their own traumas, that oftentimes they also needed to do something, start something, and and to, to offer healing, quite honestly, to be able to put it behind them, but also to help others. And so I, I go through and I talk about more stories about um, these 10 principles that really guide 
and form the foundation of who I am as a human being. And it's been such uh, an unexpected uh, gift also to realize that a cancer experience and and then doing some work on myself and self-discovery, I'm a, I'm a revolutionary now as my archetype. I'm a leader. I had no idea that I've evolved from being, as I always said, that one that propped up whoever was out front leading. And, and now I'm, I'm ready. I'm leading. I have my own. I've finally found my own voice. And that's also one of my gifts. And um, I also strongly encourage anyone who is ready, feels ready, wants, wants to go and reflect on their life that middle age is a fantastic time to do that. And um, I know my hormones have certainly settled down, and I just think more clearly now, and I, I make better choices all around. Of I'm, I'm at my best when I'm really taking care of this, of this body and this mind that's really been through a lot. And I was certainly raised to be resilient, but I'm way more resilient than I ever even imagined. And a test like uh, a cancer diagnosis will will do that to you. And so I, I don't dread challenges. I try to ward off as many as I can, but things are still going to happen that you can't control. And it's how you deal with them. It's the um, I always say it's the it's the process, and it's it's not the end goal, but it's the value is in the process of getting there, and how you how you make decisions, how you handle yourself. I'm a very information-driven person, but I'm also very supportive. But I'm a straight shooter and a realist. And I, I'm just I'm just done with propping everybody else up. I don't know how else to say that. Mm-hmm. And I'm just taking some time now to share some stories, some observations. And it's not all, um, you know, do this, don't do that. No, there's a lot. I've seen a lot of dysfunction. And there's some funny stuff. I'm sorry, this stuff is funny. And, and I'm ready to laugh just ready to laugh and not be so serious. So that's my my writing style tends to be um, just you'll be crying, you'll turn the page, and I'll say something, I'll make you laugh. That's just who I am. So I'm so glad that you're continuing to write. And Thank you. I know that um, we'll, we have all the links and everything available for people so that they can order your book. So thank you so much for coming in studio and just sharing your story and so many valuable lessons. I'm just so thankful you're here. Thank you. It's been an honor and a pleasure. And thank you for what you're doing, for getting the word out about the good that exists in our community and and people. It's just so important. We need that positivity. And I thank you for your messaging. Thank you, Diane. 